A form of prophetic material is what's called typology, biblical types. Some of the examples that probably come the closest that I would omit is Joseph in the Old Testament. In the record of Genesis, you have Joseph. Now, we know he's not sinless, but there's not a single passage that clearly shows the sin of Joseph. The closest that you come is when he basically gives his interpretation of his dreams to his brothers and it angers them. And some commentators think that that was not a wise thing to do, etc. But if this is revelation, what is he to do? To keep it to himself. You know, that would be sin. So, a type of what? Joseph? Type of Christ. I'm sorry. Yeah, Joseph as a type of Christ. The Genesis record doesn't tell us about his sinfulness. It doesn't mean he wasn't sinful. But it kind of typifies the real sinless one. And you also see a lot of the individual incidents in the life of Joseph basically dealing with adversity throughout his career. He is the savior, though all of those aspects of saving the, the people of Israel. They see all of those. You can come up with bunches of them. In fact, check out Arthur Pink's thing and probably a hundred different little things in the life of Joseph that seem to resemble what is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and it certainly prefigures it, but you have nowhere in the New Testament where you have that that relationship. So Joseph, I would say, I think it's okay and legitimate to be able to say Joseph illustrates Christ, just like anything else might illustrate Christ, but I wouldn't classify it as a type. So it's an illustration. And I would say that there are even a designed intention in terms of resemblance, but not a design in terms of a type. So it falls short of the designation. Right. Yes. And you would have heightening, but it doesn't have the designation. And this is probably the one that comes closest, but I would eliminate it because of the last one. All right. Another one is Moses as a prophet, typifying Jesus as not only a prophet, but other aspects as well. David sometimes is spoken of as a type of Christ, but in the case of David, you don't have any New Testament designation. Okay, so let's take a look at types that, in fact, have all six of the characteristics. We've already mentioned in terms of persons, talk about Adam. We eliminated Joseph, we eliminated David, even Solomon. Some would see some correspondence there between Solomon and Jesus. But we don't have any designation and some of the correspondences are not that clear as well. Even Elijah as as persons. The only one that's clearly designated is Adam. And by the way, not just in the Romans passage, we have correspondence made in other writings of Paul where he is also explicitly called the second Adam. Christ is the second Adam. Let's look some of these up. Jim, uh, look up 1 Corinthians 5, 7. 
Keith, Hebrews 7, Josh, 1 Corinthians 10. Okay, in terms of institutions, Passover, this is not as clear as the Romans passage, but it probably qualifies enough to designate the Passover as typical of Christ as our Passover as Paul seems to indicate in 1 Corinthians 5 7. You want to read that one, Jim? Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened, for Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Is that clear enough? Is that enough to designate Christ? In other words, the Passover of the Old Testament, that whole institution, and he alludes to other aspects of that in that verse, typifies what Christ was in terms of the Passover lamb. And remember, he was crucified on Passover. Hebrews 7, verse. start with verse 3 and then skip to verse 15. Keith. Without father... Now, this is Melchizedek in view here. So, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Okay, like the Son of God. Okay, skip to verse 15 through 17. And this is clearer still. Another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek. Who has become such not as the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an instructable life? For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of his And the reference there is to Jesus Christ. Is that a clear enough designation, do you think? Such that what we have in terms of an office, the whole office of priesthood, Melchizedekan priesthood, Christ is a Melchizedekan priest. Now you might say, what about the priesthood of Aaron? We don't have anything clearly designated that I can see at least to make it a type of Christ. But certainly, and he's of a different order. Christ isn't a Levite for one thing. He's from the tribe of Judah. 1 Corinthians 10 why don't you read verse 1, skip to verse 6, and then read verse 11, Josh. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea. Verse 6, now these things became our examples. Now what is he talking about there? He's talking about after the Exodus, and that whole paragraph is dealing with the wilderness experience. Okay? Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Verse 11, Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Okay, chapter 10, verse 11 there is a word related to tupas, the, the word examples. It's not tupas itself, but it's tupikas. Yeah, tupikas, related to tupas. So what we have there is the events of the wilderness in the Old Testament, those 
some of those events are types of what we could experience in the Christian walk. And they're warnings not to live like the children of Israel during the wilderness. Be careful. And because of the word tupikas, that may be the New Testament designation. Yeah, resemblance. In fact, in fact, he's making a comparison there and he's using that as an example to warn believers. You have heightening. In other words, we're living at a higher plane and there may be design there and all the others. And this may be the New Testament designation of it. Jim? When you started this list, you said these are examples with all six characteristics. And I, I don't see these being designated. Well, Maybe it's not as clear as the others, but verse 11 has the word tupikas. In other words, they are examples. He's making that tie-in. It's based on that word. It's not as clear as the Romans 5 passage. And what you're saying up here is... That's why I had you read the verse, because that particular tie-in, that verse there, or the new t- designation. You're saying that the wilderness of that is a type, the anti-type... New Testament, which is another event? No, the the walk of the believer. The experience of the wilderness is a type of the experience of the believer. We're still in we're still foreigners, we're still strangers. We have a harsh environment that we live in and we're not to be like them. We're to live differently than them. But, but the type and a type is always either event or office. Well, these are the different kinds of types that you can have. They can be persons, they can be institutions, they can be offices, and here's an example of an event or a series of events. What I'm asking, though, is both the anti-type and the type are of the same category. Yes. Well, usually, yeah. This one, this, you know, Christ is the Passover, you might say he's the Passover lamb, I guess. Yeah. We won't look these up, but also in uh, in the book of Hebrews, there seems to be a tie-in to burnt offerings, and that would include actions. In other words, actions. In other words, all these different areas, we have examples of possible types. And given the restrictions that I gave you, there's not a long list. There's not a long list. So here's an example of an action, and if you, you might study uh, Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 7, as a possible New Testament designation. And things, so you have persons, institutions, offices, events, actions, things, and an example of something is a tabernacle, and again the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews draws a lot from the Old Testament. And you have more types in the book of Hebrews than you have probably anywhere else. I already gave you the Hebrews 7, we looked at Hebrews 10, and now Hebrews 8, verse 5. Okay? So that's typology. Any questions on typology? Obviously the main thing to look for in dealing with types are those seven categories or characteristics. And for me, the capstone or the catcher is the last one, a New Testament designation. If it doesn't have it, then I'm more inclined to describe it more as an illustration or just show maybe some resemblance there, but not call it a type. 
So I'm very, very careful in what I would describe in teaching as something that I would consider typological. That's the predictive aspect, the idea of something foreshadowing, predicting something in the future. Which brings me to a real good question that Josh asked at the break. There's an issue in hermeneutics. We didn't touch on it. Well, we've touched on it, but not directly. It's called census, uh, census planar. I think that's Latin. And what the idea there, are there more than one meaning? Can, can there potentially be more than one meaning in a biblical text? That whole idea. This comes the closest to it. And what I would say is no, we stick with that one meaning of a biblical text and seek the author's intended meaning. And when it comes to typology, I don't think that that uh, Moses probably had a sense that Adam was a type of Christ in the book of Genesis. Nor do I think that Moses, when he's describing the Passover in the book of Exodus, had a sense that it was a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. The human author, I don't think, had that in his thinking. Okay? So we can say that. And similar with the, with the other things in terms of priesthood, in terms of all of these others as well. So the human author was probably not aware. And by the way, some of those other passages that we looked at prophetically, for example, Isaiah, the Isaiah uh, 9-6 passage, Isaiah didn't have a sense of that 2,000-year gap between, at least 2,000, between the first and second coming. So in one sentence, he speaks of Messiah, incarnation and ruling. So he didn't have a sense of that space in between that we have the perspective of history to look back on. Okay? So we stick to the idea of one sense of Scripture, or meaning of of any Scripture in terms of our interpretation. Now, when it comes to types, it appears that God seemed, that's the divine intent, God seemed to put within those historical incidents more than what the human author was able to see, but it's through inspiration that Paul, or the New Testament, that draws out more than what the human author had. And I think it's limited to inspiration. Does that make sense? So Paul is not violating the grammatical, historical, contextual. What he is doing is giving us, by revelation, further information that God intended that he didn't reveal to the human author, Moses, or any of the Old Testament. This is additional and beyond what we have there. Does that make sense? So we still have the one sense. It just so happens that the divine author had more intentions, and by revelation and through inspiration, and that's key, now we have typology. Make sense? So we, uh, the bottom line, is we are not at liberty 
to say, well, I see in Genesis some of these things and, and we can't inject typology into the text or added meaning to the text. What we do is we look for that single meaning. Because that's what allegorization has done. That's, that's what allegorization or eisegesis does. Exactly. Good. So I'm glad you asked that so I could clarify that at this point. Because this almost gives you the idea that, well, there's more meaning there because the New Testament writer says there is. Well, I think he got it by revelation. What's the spelling of that term? Census, S-E-N-S-U-S, Plenor, P-L-E-N-O-R. Yeah, I-O-R. I-O-R, yeah. Okay. Next week, we'll look at epistles. And epistles are not the wives of the apostles. In case you were wondering. We've come to our last session, believe it or not. Kind of went by quickly for me. I don't know about you, but seemed to buzz past us. In this last session, we're going to not only conclude the course, but our focus will be special hermeneutics. And in special hermeneutics, there are different issues, not just genre, but we've been focusing primarily on different genres of scripture. We've looked at narrative, and I've mentioned that narrative is kind of the foundation to all of the other special hermeneutical areas. It's kind of the foundational narrative, since the Bible itself could be viewed as kind of a larger narrative. And the focus that I mentioned on narrative, this is historical narratives, and I would say this is true history, true historical events. Look at poetry, and if you remember, what was the main peculiar characteristic of Hebrew poetry? Thing that you need to keep in mind, not rhyme, but parallelism. So that's the prominent feature we looked at. A subset of the broader category of poetry is wisdom, Hebrew wisdom literature. Always practical. Keep in mind also the wisdom literature, particularly Proverbs. They're not promises, but general truths. So that was a major thing that we emphasized there. And since you mentioned Jeremiah and poetry, by the way, the prophets utilize a lot of poetry. And it kind of makes sense because they they are usually highly motivational and appealing. So they're appealing to the emotions to get kind of people to understand the prophecy and to uh, respond to it primarily. So we had uh, poetry, we have wisdom literature, and all of that is Hebrew poetry, Hebrew wisdom literature. We looked at prophecy, which utilizes virtually all, utilizes all genres, but it has its own peculiar characteristics. We looked at some of them as well. And the focus of prophecy is we remain consistent in interpreting literally. A subset of prophecy or a kind or type of prophecy we call 
typology, so we looked at it, sometimes considered a difficult area to consider, so we needed to look at some of the characteristics of what typology is all about, and we looked at six tests, you might even say, of what would be required to be able to be considered fully typological. And we're going to focus today on epistles. Epistles. These are not only important because they're in the New Testament and most of the study that we do will be in the New Testament, but one-third of all the literature in the New Testament are epistles, or sometimes we refer to them as letters. And there's a slight distinction that we can make between an epistle and a letter. We'll develop that when we talk about the characteristics. So these are very important. Christianity, by the way, is unique. One of the reasons it's important. Christianity is unique in that it is only in Christianity of all sacred writings where you do have this genre, where you have epistolary literature. So if you think about any of the cults or false religions... It's just Christianity where you have epistles. It's also important because in most preaching and teaching, you'd say probably the bulk of time that Bible teachers or preachers will draw from the epistles, so it's important that we understand how to interpret them. In some ways, they're the easiest of all the genre, and probably because we're most familiar with them. But there's some peculiarities that you need to be aware of that you want to take into account as you read them or study them. And there's one that I will emphasize as what is very important. So that's the importance on your outline. I start with the extent of the epistles. I think you're pretty familiar with that. So let me ask you the question. Out of 27 New Testament books, how many epistles or how many letters are there? Nine. Nine? Okay, somebody else want to count? Eighteen back there? Oh, thirteen. Anyone else want to venture a a count? Has the right answer been taken? (laughs) The right answer has not been achieved yet. Well, yeah, but... Jim's got 21. 21? I just subtracted the ones I can think of that aren't epistles. Okay. Let's ask this question. How many narrative books are there? Four. How about five? Okay. How many prophetic books? One. One. How many letters? As long as something prophetic. No. Well, it... It has prophetic elements to it. Are you distinguishing letters from epistles? No. Is that a trick question? It's a trick question. (laughs) Try 30. 30 letters. 30 letters. No, so 13 is less than half. Yeah. That's right. Okay, let's count them. Thirteen of Paul, Pauline, from Romans to Titus. That's what you counted. Yeah. But you omitted the general letters. There's eight of them, if you count Hebrews, which 
most scholars would consider somewhat of a letter all the way to Jude. So there's Jim's count, subtracting all the others. But if you go to the book of Revelation, there's seven in the book of Revelation alone. <laughs> no, I said letters. <laughs> I said letters. Oh, yes, that's right. Well, the churches. Yeah, okay. That's right. There's seven letters of the churches. So that adds up to 28. Where, where are the last two then, if there's 30? Yeah, there's two letters that we have content of in the New Testament. How about Acts? There's two there. Chapter 15, verses 23 to 29 is a letter. Remember after the Jerusalem Council, they decided to send a letter to the churches. We And we have a brief content of that letter in uh, verses 23 through 29 after the Jerusalem Council. And in chapter 23, when they're sending Paul to Rome, I think it's the centurion, is it? that says that he needs a letter or he issues a letter or something, and we have the content of that letter in chapter 23, 25 through 30. So you add all that up, and that comes up with 30 letters. 30 letters. little trick question. Okay, so that's something of the extent. Now, to get a feel of what we are looking at when we talk about these letters... Let's take a look at the characteristics, and you start looking at the characteristics. I'll give you a list of these, but you're going to go back. Yeah, what's... what's... General epistles? They're usually described as general because they believe that they're more general. They're not... In other words, 1 Peter is not written to a particular church. 1 Peter is broad and not so definite. In that case, Hebrews is pretty specific, but it's not written to a particular church, so they classify it with the general epistles. And the reason you were asking about First and Second Thessalonians, it's written to a particular church, and it follows the epistolary genre, although it has within it prophetic material. Okay, It's part of the topic or subject, and all of the letters have some major topic or area and first second Thessalonians just happen to have eschatological topics. Okay? So we start off, first of all, before I give you a list of characteristics, if you do a word study on this particular Greek word, epistole, and you can see immediately from the word, that's where we get the word epistles. It's from the Greek word epistole, and that in general, that is just the word for a letter. And if you do a word study on that particular word, uh, I'm going to kind of give you the range of meaning here. There are a few examples in the New Testament where the word epistole is used of an official letter carrying some authority. And actually... That one that I was referring to in Acts chapter 15 is an example where it's used where the council basically with the full authority of the leaders of the church and the full authority of that council is sending this letter out in order to give guidance and instruction to the churches. So in chapter 15 verse 30 it says, So when they were sent away went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, the letter that we referred to earlier. 
And that particular letter, we have even the content of it in chapter 15, earlier verses there. So it says that they delivered the epistole, the letter. So it's an official letter. Also in Acts 9.2, this is Paul. And remember, he departs breathing, what was it in the text? Anger, particularly. Verse 2, and it says, and asked for letters from him, the high priest, to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any believing the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he wanted authentication from the Jewish leadership to be able to go down there and persecute the church and to haul them back to Jerusalem. But he wanted uh, official letters that had the full authority of Judaism. So that's an example, and there's a couple of other examples as well. In fact, you could even include that one, that second letter that I referred to in chapter 23, uh, Claudius Lysias, on sending Paul to uh, the governor Felix. So that's one way that it's used. There's some examples where there's reference to what you might refer to as personal letters. And we've learned a lot about this genre just from papyri letters of the first century. In fact, I'll tell you about a scholar in a moment that has done a lot of work in this area that gives us some of the kind of the spectrum of how these letters appear. Some of them are just certainly personal addressed to a particular individual that uh, had just personal communication, much like that we the way we would write today. Not too much different. There also is a spiritual or a metaphorical use of the word. An example of that is 2 Corinthians 3, verses 2 and 3, where Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he says, You are our epistole. In other words, you are our letter. You are our communication. In other words, when people look at you, they can read your life and see the impact that we have had, and in that sense, you are a letter. He goes on, You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. So their lives are visible. Verse 3, Being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, and cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So, a spiritual or metaphorical epistole or letter. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 2 and 3. Now, that's the only verse in the New Testament where it's used in that way. Fourthly, it is used in reference to apostolic letters that are not inspired or at least not canonized. And they're separate. In fact, most of the usages refer to apostolic letters that are not inspired. An example is in 1 Corinthians, Paul is again writing to the Corinthians, and he says in 5.9, I wrote you in my letter. Paul apostolically writing the Corinthians in a letter, not to associate with immoral people word epistole is there. So there's a letter to the Corinthians before 1 Corinthians that's not part of the canon. 
So that would be at least 1 Corinthians, and 1 Corinthians would perhaps be 2 Corinthians, or at least the second letter that Paul writes. And then in 2 Corinthians, he refers to a letter that uh, doesn't fit the description of 1 Corinthians. So there seems to be a letter that he wrote to the Corinthians that is not part of the canon and not inspired between 1 and 2 Corinthians. Because in 2 Corinthians 7, 8, he says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. So it's referred to by scholars as Paul's sorrowful letter. So if there's a letter that precedes 1 Corinthians, that would be 1 Corinthians, and then 1 Corinthians would be 2 Corinthians, and this would be 3 Corinthians, and then 2 Corinthians would be 4 Corinthians. <laughs> but only two of them are inspired, and only two of them carry the 1st and 2nd Corinthian name. Just thinking about it, I guess you could probably say well, there's probably even more of those. Yes. Have to be recorded. Yes. But it still begs the question. You said that uh, they were not inspired. Is it? Is that part of the reason? Is like maybe another part of the reason uh, we don't have any copies of them? Yes. Okay. And part of the reason they're not part of the canon. Those that were recognized as inspired were included in the canon. And I think very early. In fact, I'll refer to another one here and I'll comment on it in Second Peter. Colossians 4.16 Now this one contains the word epistole. It is you, it refers to a letter that is apostolic and not inspired, but it is also referring to the letter of Colossians, which is an inspired letter of the New Testament. Let me read it to you. When this letter, in other words, the letter to the Colossians, which is inspired, is read among you, have it also read to the church of the Laodiceans. In other words, send it down the road. And Laodicea was a very short walking distance from Colossae. And in the last part of the verse, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. So Paul wrote a letter to the Laodiceans that is apostolic but not inspired. See that? So the Colossians 4.16 verse refers to an apostolic letter that's not inspired, that's not part of the canon, and he also refers to the letter that he's writing to there, which is the book of Colossians. And this is where we get the idea of epistolary literature that has the characteristics that we'll look at next. Let me give you a couple of other verses. Second Thessalonians 3.17 says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter, epistole, every letter that is that is the way I write, referring to other letters, which would probably include other inspired and perhaps even others that are not inspired. Book of Romans 16.22, it says, I, Tertius, who write this letter, in other words, he is actually recording what Paul wanted in the book of Romans, I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord, referring to the book of Romans. So that's another reference to an inspired apostolic letter. And then the second Peter passage 
3.16, as also in all, this is referring to Paul, all Paul's letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand. So take heart here. Even Peter had a hard time breaking down Paul's sentences. Which the untaught and unstable distort, so there are false teachers then, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Peter in the first century, this is in about 60, I think somewhere around there, about 65 maybe, I don't remember exactly the date there, already recognizing the letters of Paul as the rest of Scripture, in other words, inspired. So, these books were recognized early as inspired and then included in a canon, and by the end of the first century, I think the canon was pretty well set. Make sense? But the point I'm making here is the word epistole can be used of an official letter that carries authority. Now, obviously, this would be a characteristic of apostolic letters that are not inspired and apostolic letters that are inspired as well. They carry the authority of an apostle. And then there's the other end of the spectrum, just an ordinary letter that anyone would write to anyone else. And then this special use that Paul makes, a metaphorical use of the word epistole. And then the last two uses is apostolic letters that are not inspired, and then fifthly, inspired letters of the New Testament. So that's where we get the idea of an epistle from the word epistole. And these have particular characteristics. The main characteristic, and this is very, very important because this is key in interpreting the epistolary literature. Number one, they are what we would describe as occasional documents. And what we mean by occasional documents, they are addressed to particular situations, particular occasions. So, in interpreting the letters, you want to be very, very careful in reconstructing what is that occasion that will help you to understand the communication of the letter. And if you remember, I used the illustration in a in another context. When I was moving from the place that I'd lived for many years, I was sorting things and throwing things away. So I went through this one box and deciding what I wanted to keep and what I wanted to throw away. I came across letters that I had received from a girlfriend like 30 years ago, long time ago, maybe even longer than that. And just out of curiosity, rather than tossing them because I knew that they were old, I opened one up and started reading it. And as I was reading it, I was having a hard time understanding what we were communicating. This was between me and someone else. And I had a hard time understanding some of the content of that letter. And I had to think back, you know, what was going on? In other words, what brought about this letter? And it wasn't until after I reconstructed the occasion of that personal letter, then the details of the letter began to fit together. Oh, oh, okay, ah, ah, okay, now I understand what this is all about. And this was a letter to me. Okay, so we're 
trying to do the same thing with a letter that was written to somebody else 2,000 years ago. So the better that we can identify the occasion of these letters, the better you can reconstruct what the writer is addressing to that particular audience. So this is one of the key things and one of the key characteristics of epistolary literature is they are addressed to particular occasions or situations, in some cases even a crisis. Sometimes there's a crisis that Paul or whoever is addressing, like Galatians. Uh, There's a crisis there. There's an issue that is threatening the church in terms of the whole doctrine of salvation that Paul is very concerned about. The whole issue of legalism. So he's writing to that occasion. And if you miss that, you're going to miss probably the bulk of the intent of the author in terms of the content. may not be an overt crisis like Galatians or even 1 Corinthians. There are lots of problems there. But uh, usually they're written to a particular problem or a particular need or a situation that that audience uh, was facing. So be very, very careful in uh, coming up with the occasion of the book. Here's where the background, here's where a book study comes in. So when you do that, be real careful in the letters. What was the situation? And when we talk about occasional, we're talking about this is the main interpretive problem that you will deal with that will help you to understand all of the issues of the book. So, intended in the book is a a specific occasion in the first century. And that's what you want to identify. What was that specific occasion that the writer is addressing? And in some cases, you can discern it just by reading the book. And sometimes it's helpful to look up the background, what scholars have put together for you from some of the details of the book. So, the circumstances of the readers, what was the situation with the readers, what was going on in in Thessalonica that Paul writes these two letters that are eschatological. And if you understand, and he gives you some hints there, one of the hints is they were anticipating the second coming, and not only were they anticipating the second coming, Paul had taught them certain things about eschatology. But it seems that uh, they had uh, misunderstood the teaching of Paul and some of their relatives seem to have been dying. So in chapter 4, I think it makes it clear Paul is clarifying. No, your relatives are not going to miss the second coming. They are going to be raised up and then if the second coming comes in our lifetime, then we will be raised up and we'll be with the Lord together with them in the air. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So they were all in turmoil, wondering, well, my aunt died, and I, you know, I don't know what's going to become of her. She's going to miss the second coming. She's not going to be part of the resurrection. You know, all these issues were in their thinking. So what is the circumstance of the readers and or the author? That's part of the occasion. And like I said, sometimes there's a crisis, and if you can identify that crisis, then that'll help you to put all the details together, or if not a crisis, a problem. That's the main thing in terms of epistolary literature. Make sense?
So, number one, they're occasional. Number two, they are doctrinal. They tend to be doctrinal. Now, when we say they're doctrinal, they're not like treatises. In other words, Paul didn't just decide, well, it would be nice to go off on this eschatological tangent, so I'm just going to write some theology dealing with eschatology. None of the letters are like that. What the writer does do, though, is he addresses each of those situations with a biblical answer. We call that theology. In other words, theology is, first and foremost, practical. We act based on our theology, or we conduct ourselves based on a theological foundation. And we get that theological foundation from the letters. So when Paul deals with issues, he's dealing with them on a practical level, but it's on a foundation of theology or doctrine. So this is where you formulate your doctrine is from the epistolary literature because this is their design. This is their intent. Some of them more so than others. Romans more so than Philemon, for example. But all of them are doctrinal in character and in nature. None of them are ivory tower treatises. Not even Romans. They're all addressed to a particular occasion. Thirdly, you might consider there's a spectrum of form, or there's kind of a mixed form of the epistles. Let me explain what I mean by that. And this is where scholar by the name of Adolf Deismann did a lot of work, particularly researching existing letters of the first century, and they're in the form of papyri. And some of them were business letters, some of them were personal letters, some of them were social in nature. They, there's a, an abundance of these that have been discovered by archaeology, and he goes through these and evaluates them, and he sees a spectrum. And the New Testament fit into that genre that existed in the first century. And there's two ends of the spectrum that, that he identified in terms of letters in general that existed in that time frame. In other words, just letters of all kind. They didn't have to do with churches at all or anything spiritual. And the, the spectrum is all the way from a letter that is non-literary. And what we mean by that, it would just be a letter that They're more informal. It would be the type of thing that you would write to a friend. So those tend to be more on the private end of the spectrum. And we have letters in the New Testament that tend towards this end of the spectrum. Now, obviously, because they're inspired, they're not totally private. But they may have, for example, an example of that one would be Philemon. That one may have been intended by Paul to have been written simply to Philemon concerning the slave that is the main issue there. But then it was recognized early, wow, this has elements of inspiration to it and was included in the the canon. So I don't know, we can't, there's not enough data to make a decision on that. But of all of the letters, it, it is 
more private than probably any of the others. Now, made public by the Holy Spirit, you might say. So you have that end of the spectrum where more informal, non-literary, and they tend to be more like letters that we would write. A couple of other examples, 2nd and 3rd John, written to what appear to be individuals. Real letters. Now, Geisman, by the way, put all the New Testament letters as private letters. But I think they, they would follow the same... In other words, there's some that are more towards the other end of the spectrum. From these non-literary, letter-type, private letters to what we would classify as more formal epistles. More literary. In other words, probably more thought went into them. Probably more uh, consideration in terms of structure, etc., and literary quality. More intended for public reading. And obviously you would include Romans, Ephesians in this category. First Peter, Second Peter, intended more for a broader public audience. These would tend towards what we would call more formal epistolary literature. Now, we include all of the letters, including these that are more informal, in the genre, because they fit the genre. It's just in terms of, you might say, the audience and the intended use of the letter in terms of these mixed form. Philippians would uh, fit closer to this letter aspect than the epistolary aspect. There's more comments in terms of the audience. But even Romans, which is epistolary, this one has the longest conclusion, which has a lot of interaction and greetings to individuals. Now, it's broader and bigger because he's writing to the church in Rome at large. Does that make sense? One writer, Robinson, says the following, An epistle is a work of art. A letter is a piece of life. One is like the carefully finished photograph, which does you justice. In other words, photoshopped. (laughs) This is before photoshopping. The other is like a snapshot that shows you as you are. It's his evaluation of the spectrum between letters. So, number one, and most importantly, letters or epistles are occasional. Number two, they tend to be doctrinal. Number three, they have this mixed form in terms of public-private letter epistle. Fourthly, they're more direct. Direct teaching on both theology and ethics. Now, this is somewhat the opposite of narrative. Narrative teaches and can illustrate doctrine and illustrate ethics, but it does it indirectly. Whereas the epistles speak more directly. In other words, this is what you should do in light of this doctrine. Here is the doctrine, direct teaching. Here is what you should do in light of that doctrine, direct exhortation. So you have the combination, but it's both direct. Combination of doctrine and ethics. Another characteristic is in the New Testament, they seem to be apostolic. Now, we don't know about the book of Hebrews. 
but more than likely it has apostolic origin as well. So it has authority. It has the authority of an apostle. Those are your main characteristics of epistolary literature, or this genre. But the, the last in apostolic, or the, at least the authority of apostolic, like Mark, uh, that's one that applies to all of them? The letters. We're talking about the letters. Mm-hmm. The rest of them are like individual categories, either or. Occasionally, it's applied to all. Yeah, no, all of these apply to all of them. Well, there's a spectrum there in terms of epistle, letter, personal, private, public, but that's a characteristic. Yeah. So those are the characteristics, some features that this genre displays. Yeah, generally. All of them, well, not all of them, but most of them have an opening or what you might call a salutation or some call it a prescript. So these are kind of what you can look for in terms of the structure of these epistles. Most of them have what generally would be described as an, a salutation or an opening or a prescript. And in most of them, the author identifies himself, and he identifies the audience, and he offers some greetings. Typically, like Paul, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, called according to his will, or whatever, to the whoever, Ephesians, Colossians, or whoever, grace and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ, and God our Father, however he phrases it. Okay? Salutation. Some of them are, don't don't have a salutation. For example, James does not. Hebrews does not. Second Peter does not. But in general, the rest of them do. First John does not. Oftentimes, it'll all it'll also include a thanksgiving. This is very typical of Paul. But even Paul in Galatians, there's no thanksgiving. He jumps right in and blasts them right off the bat. No thanksgiving. So look for a thanksgiving. In other words, if you're going to outline the letters, you might look for these elements. Some of them may be missing. Sometimes it has a prayer as well, or you might include thanksgiving and prayer together, mainly for the well-being of the recipients of the letter. And then the bulk of the letter is the body, so you might even include all of this as somewhat introductory. So you have a body where he's addressing the particular thing that he's dealing with, the occasion, the problem, the issue. And then there are what we would describe as exhortations. So this is primarily a doctrinal section, but it'll have exhortations intermixed. So these two kind of sometimes go together. They're not necessarily separated. But look for exhortations or advice They can be practical, they can be spiritual, however. And the last element is there's always a closing of some sort. Final greetings, a benediction, a farewell, sometimes final instructions. In other words, bring the parchments or whatever and whatever. A closing that could be in a variety of forms. 
So these are the things to look for in terms of the structure or the elements or the features or the parts of epistolary literature. Like I said, not every one of these are in every one of the letters, but this seems to be the pattern. And we've mentioned before, God is attempting to affect the will always. He's calling upon us to respond to what is taught, whether it's through narrative or epistolary. We've said before that narrative literature appeals to your experience, the sense of being there, put yourself in the story, and let that experience guide your will. Poetry works through the emotions that God has given. Emotions are good. They can be misused. They can become sin. But in and of themselves, emotions are God-given, and God can use them. And poetry especially appeals to emotions. Prophecy deals with the conscience, appeals to the conscience, because prophetic material, by its very nature, is attempting to bring God's people back into relationship, because people have wandered. In the case of the Old Testament, an entire nation. And what would you say epistolary literature would appeal to, before I show it on the screen? Keith's got it. Discursive or... Epistolary is the intellect. And I put discursive up here to remind me. Discursive has a lot of the same characteristics as epistolary apart from the occasional aspect. And what I mean by discursive, it's direct, it tends to be theological, and we would include, the, for example, the sermons of Jesus, sermons of Peter and Paul in the book of Acts, Those would be discursive. So discursive is kind of the broader category, and then epistolary is within discursive material. And the reason I've treated epistolary more prominently is because one-third of the New Testament is epistolary. Make sense? But discursive, which would include epistolary, appeals to the intellect. So that's epistles. Any questions on epistolary literature?